This morning our message will be a little bit different. I don't normally preach in this style. You can take notes if you would like, or you can just sit back and listen. Today's message, or as I would probably term it, small homilies, small sermonettes, is on grace. This morning we will have three small subsects on grace. And in between each, Stephen will continue our point of worship through music as well. And during that time, either join with him or simply continue in worship and meditation. The Lord led me in this so that we may be refreshed with the idea of grace. I'm in Romans 8:31. If you want to join me there. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What are these things? He says, graciously give us all these these things. What are these things? What exactly is Paul talking about here? He's in transition. He is providing the conclusion, the proverbial so what to the equation. But what is the equation? One simply proceeds to examine the former narrative to reveal what these things are. There are things such as participating in the Spirit, the provision of sanctification, the righteous hand of God exercising justice, the providence of God evidenced within our lives as those who have been set aside from a predetermined time as His beloved to receive intercession from the Spirit when we don't know how to pray, to have the hope and confidence that all things will work together for good for those who love Jesus. What is the purpose of grace? What is the purpose of grace? So what do we say to this? I'm not sure what to say. It seems a bit overwhelming and unbelievable to a certain extent that all of these things have graciously been given to us. Let's give it a go, shall we? I learned that this week. Have all things worked together for good for those who love Him? If this is the purpose of grace, then let's park the car for a moment and have a discussion, shall we? If I were to reflect on the patriarchs of the Old Testament uh, that have run their, their race before me, those listed maybe, say, in the pages of the Pentateuch or the prophets, I suppose I'm left to believe that the purpose of grace, that all these things have graciously been given to me, that maybe this is true. I can simply start with Joseph. 
left for dead by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold to nomads, into slavery, thrown into prisons, left for dead, estranged from his family. And yet, what is his response when God establishes him on a throne for a purpose of grace? He turned to his enemies, his own family, and he says, you meant this for evil, but God what? He is graciously given all things. There is a purpose behind grace. I can look at the same examination of Moses in the same light, in the same way. One who was tragically destined to die. One who was set adrift into a river with the hope of salvation. And the Lord's provident hand watched over him and brought him into the house of Pharaoh so that he would be raised up and be a leader of a people. But wait, that didn't happen that way. He strikes out when he finds out who he is and that causes disaster in his mind and he's having a crisis of understanding what is my purpose, what is my purpose. And so he runs. He runs into the desert. Have you ever wanted to run into the desert? Have you ever felt like all things are not there? And you've had a little dialogue with Jesus. What are you doing? What are you doing? And yet God met him in a burning bush. He wasn't done. He was preparing, wasn't he? We can look at Joshua. We can look at David, we can look at Esther, we can look at Ruth, Rahab, Abraham, Sarah, Elijah, so on and so on and so on. Even Job, who lost everything, had, him, had it returned to him twofold. What is the purpose of grace? That He will give us all these things. What is to be said about this, this grace this gift that is lavished upon us according to Paul in Ephesians 1? What is to be said about grace that is being revealed day by day and moment by moment to be the singular most powerful thing at work in my life? What is to be said about this grace that knows no limitations or lack of hope? By its very definition is hope. What is to be said about the purpose of grace? Paul said it very astutely in answering his own question. Paul, the Chancellor of Rhetoric and the Viceroy of Spiritual Machinations, Paul sums up the purpose of the grace given to us. If God is for us, who can be what? Amen. What is the purpose of grace? The perfect assimilation of thought and the assessment of the purpose of grace. Here it is. To leave us with limitless hope, boundless confidence, the picture of our weakness inoculated through His unsurpassed gift of love and salvation. What is the purpose of grace, you ask? Here it is. To demonstrate God's strength transforming our weaknesses. And yet I ask you, where is the proof? Promises can be lofty, yet reality is where hope finds itself defined. Where is the proof that no one can stand against us? Where is the proof that He, God, is for us? It is found, my friends, in an empty tomb. Is it not? Grace, grace, God's grace. What is the purpose of grace? 
It was so I didn't have to die in my sins. If we refuse to spare His own Son who cried out to Him, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? Then why would He withhold it from Me? There's the proof. What is the purpose of grace, my friend? It is so that you and I are no longer required to carry the debt of sin upon our soul. We are allowed to exchange it for freedom and life and victory. Amen? This is the purpose of grace. That God wins over death, and through that victory we are graciously given the right to be called sons of God. This leads me to ask, what can grace do for you? The splendor of the King Clothed in majesty Let all the earth rejoice All the earth rejoice He wraps Himself in light And darkness tries to hide Trembles at his voice, trembles at his voice. How great is our God. Sing with me, how great is our God. Oh, we'll see how great, how great is our Then 
Continue on in Romans 8:33 through 35. Last I left you, I asked a question: What can grace do for you? Let's throw a caveat on that. What can't it do? What can't it do? Paul says this, starting in verse 33: Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Cheers. brought this cup up specifically today. We are a family here, but we're diverse. We have a lot of different people in our church. We have a, some individuals that are part of our church that have a heritage overseas, and they have family overseas. I don't know if you've noticed, this is not Norwegian. All right. There's hieroglyphics on here. It's Egyptian. And I've received a lot of requests for prayer and some political encouragement about all that's going on recently right now in Egypt. Let me share with you something that's desperately important that isn't necessarily select to Egypt. When you ask what is the power of grace? And when we listen to Paul's words here, it reminds me of a letter I received, an email I received while I was gone from one of our new missionaries, John Cook. And before I move on in this point, I would beseech your prayers for Dr. Cook. This is his first Sunday without his wife. Shirley Cook went home. Hey, 
She's up there right now. But when we look at this word, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, I can guarantee you, as much as Jim Cook's heart feels like so much of it is missing this morning, he's rejoicing. He's rejoicing. There is no separation from God. And just for a time, he will be separated from his wife. But I ask on behalf of my mentor, my close friend, my adopted father, pray for him. She was his sustenance. In the sense of a ministry team, I've never seen one so tight. And she walked with honor in service in all of her days. She was a heritage faith carrier, as Dr. Cook would say. But his son John emailed me about their ministry in Egypt, which we now participate in. He asked for prayers for a particular young lady. I don't remember her name right now, but she was kidnapped. She was kidnapped because she's a Christian. And this happened about two weeks ago, I guess. She was one of their workers. And she was held for ransom. The family received a ransom note saying, either you give us what would be the equivalent of 10,000 American dollars or your daughter will die. A couple days later, they received another communication from the same kidnapper saying that if you don't give us the $10,000, your daughter will die. And by the way, she's now a woman. And by the way, she is now converted to Islam. And I won't go into the details of what those things mean. But when we look at words like, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, we know of no such thing sitting here this morning. We need to be in prayer for our brothers and sisters around the world. When we think about the power of grace, do we contemplate grace's possibilities or do we interpret against our limitations? In other words, is my attitude about the grace that God lavishes upon me solely viewed in light of what can grace do for me and my weakness? Or can we step beyond our narcissistic approach and faintly begin to grasp the endless capacity of grace working in us? Has grace just become a contrite word in songs? Or is it actively transforming us day to day in His glory, in His likeness, in His holiness? What is the power of grace? What can grace do for you? Paul asked in the preceding question, in light of the power of grace, it is not so much what he chooses to use as highlighted example to demonstrate the power of grace that is impressive. It is his style. His presentation takes each example and exponentially raises the bar on the bountiful and endless power of grace. How? For instance, who can bring any charge against the elect? You have been given the gift of freedom from guilt. Did you know that? Your accusers stand impotent, whether flesh or dominion, meaning demons. 
Because of the power of grace, you have been removed from the public and personal courtroom of shame, guilt, and scrutiny. Now it is He who will judge. It is the Father who will declare what you are, who you are, and how you are. It is because of the power of grace that the poison of public opinion and self-condemnation have been rendered impotent. Still questioning about the power of grace? Paul knew you would. So he asks you and I another question about the endless and bountiful power of grace. Who is it that condemns you? Pause for a moment. Think about that. Those were his words. As he's trying to demonstrate the power of grace. Who is it that condemns you? Is it family? Maybe. Friends? Past? Present? Future? Abilities or the lack thereof, intelligence or the lack thereof, wealth or social status or earning power or media or political affiliation or the church. What power do all those pillars in life hold over you? How do they define you? Seriously, pause. Think about that. How do those things define you? Listen carefully to this question. Are you subject to them or are they subject to you? Wrong question. Poorly formed. Let's try it again. Are you subject to them or are they subject to Christ? Actually, let's try one more form. Are you subject to them or are you subject to Christ? What holds power over you? Is it all those limitations, those external forces, or maybe they're internal things that you allow to limit you, crush you, steal from you? Because that's not what God's grace does. God's grace has the power to transform the weakest person into the most solid, confident, hope-filled individual. The power of grace renders the condemnation and tireless need to impress and satisfy external critics. Why? Because Jesus died and rendered guilt into the grave. He put it on the cross and then He simply erased it through His blood. If that wasn't enough, He proclaimed victory over it by raising from the dead. If that isn't enough, He is now acting on our behalf by interceding moment to moment, accusation to accusation, to convince us we are no longer defined by guilt and shame, but by His death and His resurrection. Amen? We have been bought with a price. I am a transformed man. I am different. I am no longer powerless against my accusers. Those around me, myself, or my minions, or minions of the evil one. What did grace do for me? What nothing else could. It defined me as someone deserving the constant attention and attentive love and blessing of God. Next, we'll share about the promise of grace. Steve? Dave, I'm going to call the pastor on you. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. 
that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious What can grace do for you? Well, to wrap up what Paul's talking about, we finish with the promise of grace. Romans 8:37 through 39, he says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The promise of grace. Grace is exceeding, empowering, engulfing. It is limitless, leveraging, and lavishing. Grace saves. Grace supplies. Grace satisfies. 
What is the promise of grace? That in all things we are not just able to conquer. We are more than conquerors. What earthly conqueror hasn't suffered great loss to gain what he so badly wanted just so that he may eventually lose it? Grace promises not that we can conquer earthly trials and difficulties, but that it holds a lasting and eternal effect as well as conquering those earthly trials. Why? How? Because of the work of Jesus Christ. It is His grace at work through us that we are able, or through His grace at work through us, that we are able to do far more abundantly than we could possibly dream according to His riches and grace. This is a promise. It's a promise. But, there's always a but, isn't there? There's always a loophole. There's always the eventual demise of a promise or a condition or a disqualifier, isn't there? Anybody cynical that way? I can very much be cynical that way. So why? Why do I hold that attitude? Because that is what life shows us, isn't it? It is what life has handed us. We needn't think too far or keep too short of accounts before we cringe and recoil against a hurt or a failure or a broken promise. Am I right? We hold the history of broken promises. We paint our future with condition. Our defense against failure is to relent in commitment. We simply live in a pathetic, damaged, and frail society that is a reflection of broken promises. You're thinking of them right now. Is it fair then to use the broadest of brushes and with the skeptic's eye see grace as that which is fleeting and a road of eventual disappointment? After all, who among us hasn't experienced a dry season of spiritual neglect? Wait, grace promises eternal satisfaction. You had all these fancy words, Pastor. Grace promises. But Pastor, I have gone off the cliff spiritually after knowing Jesus Christ. Where was the promise then? Where was the promise of grace then? Let's go back to what Paul said. Paul uses poetic structure here to demonstrate the security and guarantee of the promise of grace. He uses the span of polar opposites so as to help picture the complete, unconditional guarantee of God's love through Jesus Christ our Lord. Remember, nor height, nor depth, nor principality, nor power. Nothing can separate you and I from the love of God. This is what Paul states. The promise of grace should never be scrutinized through the clouded eyes of the one who set it aside. This is where the answer is, my friends. If we look at the promise of grace with cynical heart, let me introduce to you the problem. We have looked in the mirror and the problem is us. Hear me out. 
The promise of grace should never be scrutinized through the clouded eyes of the one who set it aside, who actively exchanged it at the counter for some cheap substitute that seduced and fooled us back into our former misery. You see, while we choose to put the gift of grace up on a shelf in the back of a closet, we are still holding all the rights of use as the owner of such a gift. We have just abdicated those rights temporarily. We actually take that which makes us more than conquerors and we lay it down passively before our enemies and we say, I choose not to use the promise of the love and power of the grace of Jesus Christ. Instead, I choose to let you have power over me again. I choose to submit myself to my enemies. I actively choose to lay aside that which guarantees my fulfillment and in one ludicrous ludicrous moment, I exchange the truth for a lie. This is why I have dry spiritual seasons. Not because the promise of grace failed me, but because I set it aside for some cheap substitute. Now here is the authenticity of the promise. Like the prodigal, I can at any time return to the counter and claim my gift of grace that I returned and it will be waiting for me. Without condition, without compromise, grace is there, just as filling and fresh as it ever was. No promise on earth can ever compare. For no promise costs so much, nor required so much. My friends, nothing can separate us from the love, grace of God, except our choice. What has grace done for me? It has always been faithful and waiting eagerly for my return. It has always made me more than a conqueror. It has set me free and leaves me limitless. What has grace done for you? I'm going to ask this morning if the men that are going to gather our gifts and our offerings wouldn't gather in the back. We're going to do things a little differently today. If you're visiting today, please don't feel under any compulsion That's a big word that us pastors like to use straight out of 2 Corinthians 9. It means don't feel forced, okay? Don't feel forced to do this. This is just part of our worship, and we love it. We love it. Because God gives to us, we give back with joyful and cheerful hearts. But I saw something when I was overseas that I really had a deep appreciation for. At this point in time, normally I would pray over the offering. We're not going to do that. We're going to sing a song as the offering plates are passed from the back forward, and then you'll see what we do. So, Stephen, back to you. of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise teach me some melodious song sung by flaming tongues above praise the name I'm fixed upon it name of God's redeeming love 
Hitherto thy love has blessed me, thou hast brought me to this place, and I know thy hand will bring me safely home by thy good grace. Jesus saw me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, danger from his precious Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, find my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and steal it. Feel it for thy courts above. Amen. Lord God, we lift this act of service, act of worship, these offerings to you. We ask that you would use them to your glory, use them mightily, multiply their effectiveness, and let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, bless this congregation. Help us to reach out to those who are in need. If there is anybody in need today, let them come forward. Let us know so that we may respond in kind with the gifts that you have provided. To your glory, Father. Amen. <laughs> 